Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to dork out and we're going to learn every single thing, more than you'd ever want to know, about the debt ceiling. <laughs> no, it's everything you would want to know about the debt ceiling. I mean, I mean, there's a lot to get into here, though, with the failures of the past, the failures of the present, how can avoid the failures of the future, who this is going to impact, how Biden could get out of this even today if he wanted to. There's a lot to talk to David about. I don't know what percentage of our audience really cares about this, but they should. Because, again, this is like a totally manufactured fake crisis yeah. that becomes a real crisis and Biden's handling it poorly. And then there's the question, what even is the debt ceiling? Why do we have it? We're going to dive into all that and people are going to know more probably than people in the Biden administration yeah, by the time apparently. we're done with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and David over at the American Prospect, they have been publishing a daily newsletter called X State that is tracking these negotiations right up until the X date, which we're told is June 1st, although there is some question whether they could extend it a little further beyond that. Um, but in my opinion, looking at a lot of the, the coverage and analysis, I think theirs has been the smartest um, and has pointed out some pieces that I didn't realize. For example, there is already a lawsuit going on about the debt ceiling that could be relevant to the negotiations that I saw no one else covering except for David. So um, perfect guy to have on to break all of this down for us. Absolutely. But before we get to that, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> this is so fun. I was. I'm enjoy I've enjoyed this so much. So Ron DeSanctimonious, <laughs> he uh, made a horrendous political decision. In retrospect, it's easy to call it horrendous, but there were still question marks even before he decided. I called it, I mean, I was pretty critical even before it was a total disaster, yeah. to So be he fair. decided, let me team up with not controversial or questionable billionaire weirdo at all, Elon Musk. He said, let me team up with him. We're going to launch my presidential campaign in the Twitter spaces with Elon Musk. And I mean, there's already, just like right up front, First of all, the audio quality is ass cheeks. Horrendous. It is like you're talking in a tin can. Yes. It's like you hopped back in time to 1998 and made a phone call <laughs> from a payphone, and like that's the level of the audio quality. And he already doesn't, he doesn't have a great voice. No. So like you add some really tinny audio to that. No Abysmal. visuals, no staging, nothing. Horrendous. Terrible. So bad. So anyway, he decides to do that, and it, at first it just didn't work. Right. Like there were people trying to get in three times, five times. You know, you get in, it crashes, you get kicked out, you get in, you just hear like static noise. You get in, you hear a freaking echo where people are talking and then you just double talk. Elon then, Musk is then, on a hot mic talking it, it, yeah. about like servers are melting down. Yeah. And... Ron DeSantis goes out of his own, you know, announcement <laughs> and then tries to come back into his own announcement. Like you said, you got Elon Musk. He's talking. He doesn't realize people can hear him. He's talking to David Sachs. And he's like, oh, it appears to be crashing. Oh, oh. <laughs> Now, and you learned after the fact, apparently Twitter did zero work to try to, like, make sure they were prepared for this event. <laughs> yeah, there was a tech reporter who did some digging and found that Twitter did no advance prep work to make sure that this was, that they had the technical capability to accomplish this. You were saying, Michael Tracy, I've never used Twitter spaces before, ever. Me either. Michael Tracy, I think, was saying that it commonly crashes when you he says, get to a certain size. Yeah, I believe he says I was. He was in a room with like three thousand people yelling about Ukraine, and it would crash then. Yeah. So at first, at first, it was like what five hundred thousand people or so who were in there. Yes. And then it crashed. And then, and this, I'm not talking like a couple minutes. This went on for twenty five minutes. Twenty five minutes. And the original Twitter spaces had over half a million people in it. And then when, then it when they worked, had to redo it and send out a new link, it was at peak half the audience. Oh, so half abandoned ship. Oh. And think of what that means for your fundraising, for everything. I mean, it just it could not have been more of a catastrophe. 
And then when they did actually get the tech working well enough, it's not like he took advantage, oh, this is an informal space and we'll have more of like a laid back thought. He reads a pre-prepared nine minute long stump speech that's like boring as hell. And so you have all the disadvantages of Twitter spaces sounding like crap and none of the theoretical potential. I mean, it just on every level, every decision that was made, I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? Who thought this was a good idea? And by the way, nobody's in his corner right now. Literally, everybody's going after him. So Fox News had made clear to Ron DeSantis, you're our guy. Yeah. You're our guy. We're going to back you. Murdoch met him and said, I'm with you. Even before Trump lost in 2020, he said, we're going to back you. So Fox, naturally, they're going to want the announcement, right? Hey, do an exclusive with us. DeSantis turns them down to go with Elon Musk. Well, and now guess what? Stabbed in the back time, bitch. This Game of Thrones style. Now, all of a sudden, you got all these headlines in Fox News and Fox Business where they're like, disastrous launch. Yeah. You, you know, Ron DeSantis, hor- horrendous way to start Amateur your campaign. Amateur hour, they said. Yeah. Like, how did you not see this coming? Right. Right? You're going to stab your biggest ally in the back? You need them more than anything, bro. And not to mention, Fox has got to be particularly sensitive about Twitter because... Tucker announced he's going to Twitter oh, they were and the Daily it. Wire people said, we're going to start streaming on Twitter. And there's been all this chatter about, oh, maybe Twitter is going to be what takes out Fox. So Fox is sensitive to Ron DeSantis, who is their chosen guy, doing his launch on Twitter instead of <laughs> doing, you know, doing something exclusive with them. So, yeah, they they decided to go for blood. So now let's talk about Trump. Because everybody was having a field day watching this, laughing, enjoying it. And then, yeah. By the way, the funniest reaction, in my opinion, was Elon Musk. Because Elon Musk, he's like, of course, Elon sees the reaction. Yeah. And he responded to somebody on Twitter and was like, you know, "Uh, you say it didn't go well. I say it was massive attention. Okay. Number one story in the country. Okay. And then it reminded me of that tweet where, you know, it's like, he does something stupid and then his sycophantic fans are like masterful gambit sir <laughs> i think it was like elon slams dick and car door Mas- masterful gambit sir yeah he was doing that to himself you know like oh no actually this went really well literally nobody believes that nobody believes that well massive massive cope yes and as disastrous as it was for desantis and also by the way embarrassing because the content of the conversation was like 50 percent people fawning over elon OD and twitter spaces no instead of talking about this man who's launching his presidential campaign. Um, But uh, terrible for Ron DeSantis, obviously, but also a real disaster for Elon Musk, you know, and unmasking him once again as if you need it, that this is not the the promised genius that we have reported to be. Like, to the DeSantis people, are all of you absolute nat IQ morons because you had to see the roughly 7,412 stories leading up to this day about all the red flags around Elon Musk. He's not a super genius. He doesn't get everything right. You know, he's got a massive PR effort around him that propped him up. And he's got this thing which, like, seems to convince, you know, middle-aged white men that he's, like, the savior. But he's not. He's not even close. How many things have you ignored about Twitter Twitter that we messed up Twitter? 75% of the staff you fired and you're surprised when your shit's not working? Yeah, I mean, it's so buggy. It's, like, gone down a bunch of times. Just randomly stuff will stop working. Like, just on a basic level... You have to ask, okay, this is mission critical. We have spent months preparing for this moment, if not years, preparing for this moment of launch. It's got to be choreographed. It's got to be perfect. How about we go with the janky platform that, like, shuts down randomly all the time and has a million bugs and this guy who's a mess? Yeah. So Trump's first reaction, Mm -hmm. I got to admit, our big wet boy missed. 
mm-hmm. our big beefy boy. It, w- it was a little bit of a whiff. In fact, I looked at it and I was like, is he on something? Because it seemed, and not Adderall, because when off. he's on Adderall, he's cooking. Yeah. It was like, this is weird. Maybe like, he needed to take the Adderall. He, right, Maybe he wasn't was on the Adderall. Problem. Yeah. I don't, I, uh, I don't have the tweet in front of me right now, but it was something to the effect of like, Rob, of course he calls him Rob, which I now find hilarious because I don't even understand why he's doing it. it. I've got it. Okay, go ahead. Rob, my red button is bigger, better, stronger, and is working. Truth, yours does not, per my conversation with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, soon to become my friend. So that was the first attempt. I... I'm just confused at that one. I'm yeah, like, dude, you're miss. Trump. Like, you got to bring your A game, dog. This he, is like D he's game. He's given you so much material to work I know. with. And this, this is what you're going I know, with? A callback to something from like 2017. It with was all Kim downhill and, after Rob. Right. That Rob was, was the funniest strong part. Strong opening. Right. And then, and then it, it, fell just, off. it just tapered off. Yes. Right. But he did not disappoint. Because in typical Trump fashion, he did not stop. He kept going. He's probably still talking about it right I, now. I he released he a is. video this. <laughs> he released a video this morning, which is the day after. It's like Rob, this is the worst campaign launch anybody's ever seen ever. Many people are saying this. So anyway, this That's was the first true, one. Though I know <laughs> he did the that. Worst. So so uh, this was the first reaction where I was like, oh, he's cooking again. Watch this, guys. If you guys can't see it, it's like the SpaceX Elon shuttle collapsing and burning in flames. And then he's got, it says Ron with the Jeb exclamation That's on the, it. Twitter caught that. I didn't catch that I didn't initially. I didn't catch that right away either. But yeah, the Jeb, it was Jeb with the exclamation point. Like but that was, was his slogan. Yeah, but he made it Ron. He made it Ron and the thing. To, and I, by the way, I saw some great tweets also of people making the similar kind of point like, Oh, Ron DeSantis finding out what happens when you rely on Elon Musk to launch stuff and it shows a SpaceX rocket just absolutely blowing Blowing, up when when it's taking off. Yes. Um, So I I also love, I want to go through some of these other things I saw on Twitter. Somebody tweeted Ron DeSantis' campaign and it shows, I don't know if you're online enough to know this, but the old school Stephen A. Smith tweet where it says, take a look, y'all. And then it's just like a, it's just like a. Oh, it's just like a JPEG IMG that doesn't have a link to it. Four, three, four, six, John yeah. JPEG. <laughs> and there's also like random capital letters in the word take. It's like, take a look, y'all. <laughs> like, nothing there. Um, we also have this I thought was hilarious. You had Blacks for Trump showed out outside of DeSantis's event at the Four Seasons where people were like there to listen to the donors on Twitter. Donors were there, which, by the way, hilarious. Uh, Imagine them sitting there for 30 minutes as you hear echoes and static noise uh, and nothing's happening and it's crashing and they're trying to get back in. This is big money donors. Yeah. So you got that going on inside. Blacks for Trump outside, by the way, calling Ron DeSantis racist. (laughs) These are Trump supporters who are like, he's so racist, man. He did the thing on the African-American studies. How, How dare he do that? I love how the Trump people are hilarious because they're so non-ideological. Yeah. They'll, they'll just, just hit people with anything. Anything. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and then the the Daily Mail, of course. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't believe nobody thought of this before. Ron Disaster. Yeah. It's I was just like, oh, God, why didn't I think of that? People. Yeah. It was waiting for it. And the speech, the speech itself, the thing that I kept noticing is, first of all, the first like 15 minutes was all COVID. Right. Why are you talking about COVID still? www.wrapitup.com. Literally, we are so far by it. Like one percent of people say this is it is top issue. Literally, the absolute bottom on the list of issues that people that in polling say they care about right now. Yeah, the bottom issue. So when you're up there doing COVID this, COVID that, people are like, it's not going to work. Right. It's not, it might work in his little group, and that's thing. He's way too online. That's because we also thing. got gender ideology. Wouldn't shut up about that. DEI which probably, what, 17% of the country even knows what that is? We get Woke Olympics, CRT, 
all of those things were mentioned and were mentioned multiple times before we got anything on jobs or healthcare. And by the way, I actually don't even think he mentioned jobs or healthcare. Right. Could you imagine launching a presidential campaign and you don't mention any kitchen table issues? Any. He does like vague allusions to like Florida is a great place and people are moving here. But in terms of any specific, even from like a right wing perspective of, you know, here's how we're going to curb inflation or whatever. It's bad. He went on with uh, Trey Gowdy and did like a normal ass Fox interview, which, you know, it was terrible. But in comparison to the Twitter thing, it felt like, okay, well, at least, you know, the it technically functions. He got asked a question about the economy and it was the same problem. It was all this like technical jargon about the Fed and a stable dollar, nothing that was relatable and tangible at all. Meanwhile, you have Trump out there hitting him, I think, very effectively on wanting to cut Social Security, wanting to cut Medicare, yep. on wanting to raise sales taxes 23% across the board. So Trump has chosen this issue set that has like really broad resonance. And DeSantis, it's very niche. It's very online. And it's also uh, very targeted towards like the college educated Republican base right. and their particular mm-hmm. like niche issues of cons- ESG. The I I didn't even know about the cart. Uh, he said like the accreditation, accreditation cartel, cartel about around colleges. Colleg- yeah. Like, like what, what, bro, what are you what talking are about? What are you doing right now? Stop reading Barry Weiss's garbage. There's it's not going to get you like, anywhere. Cryptocurrency <laughs> and Dogecoin. Yeah, that guy David Sachs brought up Dogecoin. Uh, like what? You're bringing up a scammy ass coin in the middle of a presidential launch? What is wrong with you? Yeah. So it was a, it's a very wine track kind of you know, campaign within the Republican base, really, you can see why he hasn't had resonance with the like non-college educated, more working class part of the Trump coalition and really limiting himself. So even without the technical glitches, it was a mess and a disaster. And even on like the net migration point to Florida, as Trump says, of course, Ron, there's sunshine and beaches. (laughs) It's like, that's so accurate because you know this, that literally describes me. I love Florida. Why do I love Florida? Because of the sunshine and the beaches. It's got nothing to do with the politics. Yeah. I'm not like, oh, look, he did the Stop Woke Act. Let's move there for that reason. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm so happy teachers can't say if they're gay. Right. Like, <laughs> of course Thank not. Thank God they got that Amanda Gorman poem out of the out yeah. of the elementary school. <laughs> so uh, before we show you the, the Trump absolutely bodying and mauling DeSantis with the the last part, I do want to uh, tell you guys this because I found this fascinating. So Matt Binder tweeted this. So apparently... Uh, Twitter took off the 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 view count uh, feature on all the tweets. Did you know that? No. Yeah. So I I didn't realize that either. I'm not gonna lie. People were really against the view count thing. It didn't bother me. I just thought like whatever. Who cares? So so like on the videos you post on Twitter. No no, no not can't. even videos. But yes, it, it's for videos too. But they just had tweet view counts. Too. Oh okay. They did that for a while. And they now had that for a while. Now okay. they've gotten rid of it. But apparently okay. they didn't do it for. I believe it's Android. Android, they still, for whatever reason, it was an oversight, they left the, the view count there. Mm-hmm. So DeSantis's, um, from his main account, his video that he tweeted out, like his big, like, okay, I'm running now thing. Yeah. Um, the actual number that it shows on Android is 122,000, okay? Now, by the way, that is like, I'm pretty sure they juiced their numbers anyway, but let's just, let's just accept it at face value, it's 122,000. Okay. They... Uh, they then posted like a screenshot of it, the DeSantis people, and changed it to 4.1 million. Hmm. So they're juicing their own numbers. Wow. This is according to Matt Bender. And, you know, I, he has all the screenshots. It looks legit, etc. That's so embarrassing, man. All of this is so deeply embarrassing. But we're saving the most embarrassing part for last year. So this is something Trump reposted, I believe, on his Instagram or on Truth Social or wherever. Hilarious. Take a look. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Ron DeSantis Twitter space. Hello. Is my microphone working correctly? George, can you just wait while we... Hello. Can you hear me? We can all hear you, George. Can you just hold on for a second? Hilfa, I don't think they can hear me. <coughs> I can hear you fine, George. Just speak to I the I don't microphone. think George knows how to use Twitter. Hello. Uh, can you hear me now? Can I please make my big announcement now? Everyone just... Hello. Just shut up, George. Can somebody just mute, George? <laughs> Dick, could you try not to cough on that? <clears throat> okay, so how are we going to take out Trump, you guys? Uh, uh, guys from the FBI, this is not a private call. This is a public Twitter space. Everyone can listen in. God damn it. Uh, anyway, guys, we uh, invited everyone to this, uh, this Twitter space so Governor Ron DeSantis could... <coughs> everyone just shut the hell up so I can make my announcement, okay? You go, girl. Wait, the devil is gay? So what? Everyone in this call is gay. I happen to know every single one of you has a secret gay lover. Guys, can we please just calm down? So anyway, guys, I just wanted to announce that I'm... Okay, I can hear the governor very well. Shut up, Would you please shut up already? I'm running for fucking president, okay? Yeah. We kind of already knew about it. Congratulations, Governor. Well, that concludes our Twitter space for today. Thank you to all of our. Hold your horses, Elon. The real president is going to say a few words. The devil, I'm going to kick your ass very soon. Hitler, you're already dead. Dick Cheney sounds like you'll be joining Hitler very soon. Klaus Schwab and George Soros, I'm putting both your asses in jail. And Ron DeSanctimonious can kiss my big, beautiful 2024 presidential ass. Trump 2024, baby. Let's go. Oh, my God. Man. Like, is he how brutal, do you, dude. He how is do you, brutal. How do you go up against that guy? How do you, do, like, can you? He's totally unmoored by rules of decorum and civility. And he gets away with it. And, it, and But it, it makes it awesome, right? Like, I, you know what I noticed? We've talked about this before. When Trump does something that's, like, outrageous, the first time he does it, people are like, oh! Right. Sir! Right. The second time he does it, they're still like, a, ooh, too far. Right. The third time it becomes like, uh? And then the fourth time, you're like, <laughs> I, I like that. It's kind of funny. Like, that's what happens, yeah. right? Like people give it's like the South Park pass. South Park kind of got away with whatever they wanted to get away with because they yeah. went over the top so many times over and over. Yeah, he has that. He so has now it's it. like he's like, like you made a point. Like imagine if Marianne Williamson did something like akin to that. Yeah, right. We'd be like, oh my god, what are you doing? Yeah. And mostly the media would bury her uh, and right, all her supporters would be like, I don't know, this is tasteless. I mean, but Trump does Adolf it, everybody's Hitler. like, they sug- I mean, in this piece, they suggest Dick Cheney's going to die. Like, they put Adolf Hitler and the devil. <laughs> DeSantis. He says he's going to jail Klaus Schwab and uh, and George Soros. Which, by tells, the way. Tells DeSantis to kiss his, you know, presidential ass. Or, like... There are a thousand things in there that no one else could get away with. And yet he posts it and everyone's just like, LOL. <laughs> it, I know. It, it, honestly, it is all good fun. Like he is sort of burying him. And how do you respond to this? I mean, look, DeSantis' argument, which sort of makes sense, is the whole like, I'm a winner. You're a loser. 2018, Republicans lost because of you. 2020, they lost because of you. 2022, they lost because of you. I won by 19 points. Step aside, son. Like that's his argument, right? But yeah. When Trump just keeps hitting you with absolute nuclear bombs in the face, 
Like, what do you do? Is that argument really going to stick? Or are you going to, no matter what you do, you sort of look like a little cuck boy? You well, know what I mean? Not to mention, if your whole argument is like, I'm Trump without the drama, I'm Trump, but I'm competent, and then that's your launch, you know, that's you're rough, not man. really demonstrating the level of competence that is supposed to be core to the argument that you're making here. And then, yeah, it's a totally asymmetric field. Trump hits him with everything he's got all day, every day. But it's, so, but it's and so DeSantis, funny. It's so funny. And DeSantis doesn't, can't even say his name. I know. I mean, he didn't yeah. even, in his uh, disastrous Twitter launch, in the multiple interviews, he, he didn't even mention his the name. The closest he comes, you're right, he doesn't mention it. The closest he comes is to say, we've gotten used to a culture of losing in the Republican Party. Right. And everyone's but like, he won't Ooh. even say, like, a culture of losing because of Donald Trump. He won't even say that. So how do you be, when, when this guy is unloading on you and everyone is just, like, loving it and eating it up, and you can't even take like a passive aggressive jab at him. Wait, How is that going to work out? I will say this, though, and tell me if you agree with this. I do feel like the absolute like jovial reaction among people like us. Yeah, I do think that is more of an online thing. You know what I mean? I do think that you will find some people in the normie world who are like, he is being a clown. You know what I mean? Yeah, they say that, but, and, but they the thing say is, that his but lead they is so big him. that it doesn't really matter, right? Like, even if you take 10 or 15 points off of his lead, because some people think this is in poor taste, which I don't even think that'll happen, but just assuming that would happen, he's still up by 20 points, 25 points, right? I mean, anyone who would have left Trump over, like, decorum issues has been long gone. I know, but I guess I'm more <laughs> alluding to, like, moderates or centrists or people who are somewhat apolitical but still vote every four years. Like, those people, I think, might, their reaction You're talking is more not, about more of, like, a general election audience than a Republican Yeah, and audience. not... And not like internet brain people. We're all internet brain, no matter how much we try to avoid it. And so yeah. we just take nothing but, but glory in watching this hilarious fight here's, unfold. Here's the problem is that Trump is both internet brained, but he also has demonstrated he still has some of that normie touch. So as we were discussing earlier. Because of the Medicare stuff, yeah, social security DeSantis stuff, yeah. is 100% internet oh, yeah, brain, and he's much worse at it he's than gone. Trump yeah. is, right? So mm -hmm. he's not good at being a troll. He's not funny. It is sanctimonious. I mean, the nickname does kind of work and fit, right? It is sanctimonious. It's these very niche ideological crusades. Trump Trump does the online thing maybe better than anyone else, but then he also was like hitting him on Social Security and Medicare and hitting him on taxes and hitting him on the border, which is something the Republican base does genuinely care about. So I don't know. I, I listen, anything can happen. I'm not saying it's over for him, but he really needed this moment to demonstrate that there was life in his campaign, that he could be the Trump beater, that he could be the guy because the media has been, you know, they were kind of looking for a little bit of a comeback narrative. They were writing, though, here's his $200 million plan to win. They were writing those pieces. You gave no one, your allies and your advocates, like you gave no one any reason to think that you had what it takes to defeat a guy who's riding high. I, I have to say about the Trump thing, too, the thing that's so amazing about his political phenomenon is that it very clearly is just a vibes thing. It's all vibes. He's captured the heart and the imagination of a certain segment of the population mm -hmm. who love him vociferously. And it is 100% vibes. It's like I said, the, the blacks for Trump showing up outside of yeah. Ron DeSantis' launch and saying that, you know, Ron is racist. And it's like, you're backing Donald Trump. But they don't care. It doesn't have to be ideologically consistent. None of that really matters. You know, and, and that's some, unlike anything I've ever seen before in politics in my entire life. Because I'll give you one more example. Like in that launch video, it had George Soros, right? Yeah. And all the Trump people now believe Ron DeSantis has been endorsed and backed by George Soros. They all believe it. Yeah. It is fundamentally untrue. 
where they got that. So Alex Jones said that on his show. He got that, that from an article which talked where Soros made some sort of comment like, I think DeSantis can beat Trump. And he also said, like, I'm looking forward to them going at it. He said something like that. They spun that as George Soros endorses Ron DeSantis. And then you had it written on like right wing rag blogs. You know what I mean? Like the fringe of the fringe ones. And then they all run with it. And so like the truth doesn't matter. Reality doesn't matter. Even ideology doesn't matter. It's yeah. just like they love the vibes that Trump gives them. They love yeah. how he makes them feel. They love that he's like, you know, he trigger the libs all day long. Like yeah. that really is what. But and of course, the reason I love it. Number one, he's funny. Number two, let him fight, man. I yeah. want to see them rip each other apart. I don't like either one of these guys. Yeah. So when Trump goes after DeSantis, it's like, yeah, you're making a lot of good points, bro. The DeSales tax thing, you want to do a regressive tax where you're taxing middle class and poor people? No, I'm not for that. You want to cut Social Security Medicare? Yeah. I'm not for and that. And he was a Tea Party dude who wanted voted repeatedly to cut Social Security and Medicare. That's right. No and doubt look, about it. I hope DeSantis grows a pair of nuts and turns around and says, hey, 200,000 jobs were outsourced under your administration, Donald Trump. What happened to Mr. Anti-Outsourcing? Mr. I'm going to keep American jobs in America. What happened to that? Yeah. You know, what happened to you're tough on crime? You did the First Step Act. You're freeing criminals all over the place. Yeah. I want to see them rip each other to shreds. I would love every single second of but it. But so far, it only goes in one direction. So far, it only goes in one direction. everyone is too afraid. I mean, I do think the vibes thing is most clear on the Republican side. Oh, absolutely. But there's an element on the Democratic side Well, it's well. electability on the Democratic side. Right, which so is they do its this own vibe. It is, Which yeah. is its own vibe of like, oh, the, the responsible one, the adult in the room. Like, that's Correct. the vibe on the Democratic side it, that they pick up on. It's a meta game where mm -hmm. they do like, they do this 3D chess thing where it's like, well, I think the person who can most beat the Republicans, which is the most important thing, is the one that the media is force feeding me. So I think it's this, the most conservative Democrat. Shock, it always happens to be the most conservative right. Democrat, right? Right. That's their version of the vibes thing. Yes, exactly. But, but they would, nobody on the Democratic side would, would take stuff like this. And that, I mean, keep it real, that does, in a weird way, it does make the right wing base just more fun in a sense, right? Like they, they want you to go balls to the wall. Yeah. He wants you to just like, hey, man, say whatever God the hell comes to your mind. Yeah. No filter whatsoever. I do wish there was more of that on the left. Obviously, left-wing ideology and sensibilities and morality and ethics are way better. So it has to be in line with that philosophy, yeah. right? But I still like the... There's just like no more, holds barred, like I'm just going to say it type There's stuff. a lot more pearl clutching in the Democratic of side course, of the of aisle course. and like yeah. moralizing and that sort of thing, which is, you know, it's it's not very fun. I know, which, by that. the way, how can how on earth can DeSantis respond to that thing that Trump put? There's that, literally nothing you nothing, can say. You can do like, nothing. Again, press conference. Uh, the devil actually doesn't support my campaign. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Adolf Hitler, despite what the former president says. <laughs> it's like, what are you going to say? You, there's, there's, you can say. Like, you just have to take it. You just got to take it. Take it on the chin. Take it. And when he has, I've brought this up a million times, but it was so revealing. When he took a little bit of a shot at Trump over, like, the Stormy Daniels hush money stuff, he was like, oh, well, I don't know anything about hush money payments to porn stars. There was a meltdown among Trump people. True. There was a meltdown overall in the right about like how how mean he was to Donald Trump and how dare you and how could you say that? I'm like, I feel bad for him in a sense because Trump can do whatever he wants and there's just a completely different standard on the other so, side. So final, final question, I'll ask you yeah. this because like I, I just described the dynamic with Trump. First time he says it, it's outrageous. Second time, it's a little outrageous. Third time he says it, it's like people are like, okay, fourth time he says it, everybody's laughing. Yeah. Right, like that's how it works with Trump. If DeSantis were to push through the awkward, outrageous phase, would it work? No, because he doesn't have the skill or the charm right. or the I mean, charisma. I mean, that's my intuition as well. Donald Trump is a TV star. He has an X factor. He has charisma. He has like, a, he's hilarious. He's genuinely 
hilarious, which is not a typical, like, that's an unusual trait. And so, no, do I think DeSanctis can pull that off? No, I do not. Yeah. Rob, oh, I mean, do I think Rob can pull that off? No. It's just like, I wonder mm-hmm. what what his best case scenario is moving forward. I thought for a very long time he was plotting along nicely, you know, doing the best he possibly could given the hand, hand that he was dealt. Yeah. But we're at the point now where it's like, dude, even if you overperform what your abilities are, you're still going to come up 20 percentage points short Sagar of was this trying wrecking to like, ball. Sagar was trying to be nice on breaking, but all right, let me make like the best case I can for Ron DeSantis. And it basically came down to, well, Trump could die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know my theory. It's he could die true. <laughs> or he could end up in jail. And right, I think that see, makes a difference. It's so funny. You don't even think that makes a difference. Well, You're like, he'll still win Republic- from prison. I still think he'll run- win the Republican primary. Do I think he win the general election from prison? Of course not. No. no. But do I think he would win the Republican primary from prison? <laughs> that would be so yeah, funny, man. Yeah, It'd be do. so funny. It's just, it's, it's a fitting way to the end of the U.S. empire, isn't it? Like this reality star buffoon who became president, ran again from prison, almost won. He was like in that scenario, Biden would only win by like two points, by the way. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> I would be like, oh, Joe, I don't know if this guy is going to make it for another, but what else can we do? You know, and God forbid we don't want Kamala either. But, and if it was Kamala, she might actually lose yeah, to Trump in lose. prison. She would lose to Trump in prison. <laughs> Drag Trump. Would, uh, that's my toilet. My toilet's right here in the cell. <laughs> you guys can all see it. It's a beautiful toilet. We keep it nice and clean. They give us three meals. They give us three meals. It's very nice, but I'm always working on my pol- political stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbing I mean, like, yeah! It's such a sad state that the country is in with these two dudes that no one wants to be the nominees. And it's still like, oh, I guess this is what we're like likely to head towards. But um, I guess all you can do is laugh. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. You and you give. Uh, all right, we got David Zane, executive editor of American Prospect. I think one of the best thinkers in terms of like actually understanding the powers available to politicians and to the president specifically um, to break down for us what is going on with the debt ceiling. So let's get to it. Welcome, David Dayan of the American Prospect. Good to talk to you, man. Welcome, and uh, I guess belated congratulations. Oh, thank, oh, you. thank you very much. That's very sweet of you. Appreciate that. Um, so. I want to talk all things debt ceiling with you to really catch everybody up as to what the hell is going on with it. But I want to start super, super basic. So first of all, just to explain for everybody, like, what is the debt ceiling? Why do we have it? Because I know that intuitively to to some people in this country, they would think like, oh, you know, it makes sense to limit the amount of debt that you have. So there's a debt ceiling. So we should never cross it or, you know, maybe we shouldn't lift it. It's fiscally irresponsible to lift it. So uh, how would you explain like what the debt ceiling is, why we have it and if we should have it? The debt ceiling is, uh, I mean, the simplest analogy would be your credit card bill. Uh, The government makes certain obligations through passing a budget or passing legislation that has certain certain funding appropriations in it. And uh, then, then we have to actually pay for those obligations. That's the, uh, the, the, the job of, of the Treasury. And uh, the, the, you know, the debt ceiling is this artificial mechanism that puts a limit on how much we can pay. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we've we've already made these these funding obligations. We've already made the spending, and then uh, Congress comes in and says, "All that stuff that I told you to spend on, uh, you can only spend this much. Uh, you can only borrow this much to pay it off." Is essentially the uh, the the what it means. So, so just to just to I'll break that down for everybody, it's like if I go to a restaurant and I order lobster for everybody at the table, I get the bill. It says $220 or whatever. 
And then I look at the bill after I'd already ordered the lobster and I go, oh, I'm not paying for that. That's effectively what we're talking about, right? Like if you were going to make it so, oh, you can't go over this limit. Well, then don't order lobster for everybody at the table. Order, you know, whatever it is that you have that's money in your pocket or money in your debit card account or whatever, whatever your credit limit is. So is that a fair analogy? Yeah, it's based on prior spending. So you, you've 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 already bought the lobster, you've eaten the lobster, you've uh, you've had a wonderful time at the restaurant, and and then the time comes to pay the bills, and uh, you don't have enough money in your wallet to pay that bill, and so uh, if you're House Republicans, you say, well, I, I'm only going to pay that if you give me ice cream. I mean, that's essentially <laughs> that's essentially what they're saying. Like you have to give me something else. To, uh, 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 in order for me uh, to be allowed to pay that bill. So um, talk to me about, this is one piece that I've been trying to figure out. What would happen if Biden did nothing? Because you have these conflicting sets of instructions that he's basically gotten for the United States Congress. One set of instructions says, spend the money. The other set of instructions says, don't do what you need to do to spend the money. And you've got all sorts of sort of constitutional questions here. You've got the 14th Amendment question that the debt shall not be questioned. Then you've got the question of, you know, what Republicans have floated as, oh, you could prioritize certain payments over other payments. Well, that's sort of taking the power of the purse away from Congress. So that raises constitutional issues as well. So if Biden just did absolutely nothing, how would this all shake out? Well, everything you just said is the subject of a lawsuit that has been put forward by the National Association of Government Employees, uh, which is an affiliate of SEIU, uh, a lot of government employees. Uh, It's important to note that we've already hit the debt limit. The Treasury Mm -hmm. Department is now engaging in what is called extraordinary measures, uh, basically conserving cash so that they still have it on hand to pay bills. They've been doing that since January. And one of the things they did was they uh, stopped reinvesting funds in government retirement accounts. One of those accounts affects the National Association of Government Employees. So what they have said is we're we're harmed by this, by you hitting the debt limit. And they make the exact same arguments that you make to claim that the debt ceiling statute is, is unconstitutional. It requires the president to break the law, uh, one law or the other, uh, through payment prioritization, through uh, ignoring uh, the 14th Amendment. Either either they have to ignore the 14th Amendment and not pay back bondholders, or they have to ignore all of the federal statutes that Congress has put together obligating them to spend money. And it creates a situation where the president has a line item veto, essentially, right? It's like, mm. I'm going to pay you and I'm not going to pay you. And the line item veto has already been ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court uh, back in the 1990s. So uh, that is the substance of the lawsuit, uh, exactly as as you described it. it. It gives the president excess executive power. The, the, the Congress did not give a plan to say, you pay these people first and these people second. And so it, uh, it it's a separation of powers issue. And I think this is really important because, and this is something you've been pointing to and why I wanted to have you on today, because there's all this nervousness from the White House about, you know, engaging with the 14th Amendment and, oh, my God, it can end up in courts. And your point is, 
this is already in courts. There's already lawsuits around what all of this means. And you have these two conflicting sets of um, instructions that require the president to basically break the law one way or another. So do you have any expectation that that case is going to lead towards to any sort of resolution with regard to the debt ceiling? Or is it going to take too long or get hung up on some other sort of procedural stumbling block? I mean, we'll see. There's a hearing in uh, the federal court in Boston uh, next Wednesday. We're going to have somebody there. Um, uh, the defendant in this case is is Joe Biden and Janet Yellen. Right. It's the government. And uh, if they were really committed because, you know, Biden has said in public, I think we have the authority under the 14th Amendment to keep, you know, moving along with borrowing. Uh, if they were committed to that, they would not defend this case. Right. I mean, they would they would say, uh, yes, uh, the National Association of Government Employees is right. And the debt ceiling statute is unconstitutional. That is not what has happened. The Justice Department is opposing uh, the uh, what is called a motion for preliminary injunction to uh, essentially block the debt ceiling statute. Um, and there's going to be a hearing about that very point uh, next Wednesday. So uh, it, it's kind of a, a little two faced on the part of Biden. He's saying in, in, in public comments, uh, here I am. Uh, I, I would like to use this authority, but it's going to take too long and it's going to be litigated. And, and you know, uh, and then, then with the other face, he's saying, uh, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to block an effort in court that would happen, you know, relatively swiftly uh, if I just didn't defend the case um, to to, uh, you know, uh, uh, make make it so that this debt ceiling statute is unconstitutional. I mean, obviously, that would go up the chain that would go maybe to the Supreme Court, although it's a question of, you know, who would have standing to sit, stand in the shoes of Biden. Mm. Uh, who would who would ha actually be able to be the intervener in that case? It's unclear if there's anyone who's available to do that. Um, so it's a really interesting sidelight to the, all this. It's happening sort of slightly off stage, uh, where Biden has sort of cut off all these avenues of escape and said that there's no alternative other than to negotiate with House Republicans on a deal. Uh, which, you know, think about any negotiation you've ever been in. If you if you're sitting at the table and saying there's no way we can do anything else except negotiate with you, the other side of the table is is obviously going to say, well, then give me everything because there, you've got no other out. You have no other out. It's like playing poker with your your cards. Hand showing. Up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So let me ask you, there's a, a there's two questions I have in response to that. But let's start with this one. Um, I read earlier today, and tell me if this is true or not, that we're, we're already kind of past the date where the ball needs to be rolling. So in other words, you, you need to already have some sort of a deal, and then that deal needs to move through the House, it needs to move through the Senate, it needs to get to the president's desk. And we're already past the date where we would have the time available to get a deal done. So you already are kind of almost mandating that we go down a different path, 14th Amendment, mint the coin, whatever it is. Is that true? Well, I mean, it's it's true, but it's not right. I mean, you know, Congress, those rules, uh, uh, the rules by which it would take time are set by Congress. Right. So Congress okay. can also make a new rule like the, the, what would probably happen if a deal is reached in the next 24, 48 hours is there would be a motion for a one week suspension of the debt limit, which right, would okay. then give them the time uh, to to pass a deal. 
so I, I think that whole ticking clock thing is kind of ginned up by the, the type of media sources that talk to House Republicans a lot to put more mm. pressure on the White mm. House to make a bad deal. Interesting. So my other question is, how do you make sense of the Biden administration's actions? Because to me, my takeaway when I look at it is obviously he's like a 1990 style Democrat and there's this fetishization. It's such a hard word to say. I, <laughs> I always struggle with that word. Uh, but there's this uh, bipartisanship fetish where mm. he values that almost above and beyond the substance of whatever is in the actual deal. Right. And so that's what would cause him to go down this path. Do you have the same reading as I do or is it something else? I mean, I think that's part of it. I think there's this desire to be the the reasonable people, the the, the most responsible people in the room. Uh, some would say that uh, uh, not negotiating with legislative terrorists would be the responsible course of action. Right. But right. Um, but there's this, you know, there's been this constant appeal to uh, you know center left pundits who, who I think are the constituency, uh, or at least they see it. Uh, some people in the White House see it that way. Um, that, that we're being reasonable. We're, we're offering concessions. We'll offer more concessions. Uh, and it, it just, it's just a terrible way to negotiate. Um, and I, I think what actually happened here is, uh, there was an expectation on the part of the white house that Kevin McCarthy wouldn't be able to get his act together to pass, uh, a bill to, to, to pass essentially, uh, a, a counterpoint to uh, a clean debt ceiling. Um, they did pass that bill. It was called the Limit, Save, Grow Act. Uh, it was a bit of a struggle. They passed it with exactly two votes to spare and two Democrats missed that vote. Uh, so they, they they pretty much, it was pretty much a tie, uh, but they did get it through. And, uh, but there was an expectation that the, 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 there was such a small window, uh, small margin uh, in the House for Republicans, it was such a, a, a fractious caucus. There were so many uh, hard right members who wouldn't agree to anything that uh, they wouldn't be able to get anything done. And uh, there was this hope, I think, uh, kind of a false hope that uh, McCarthy would bang his head against the wall and nothing would happen. And he would have to come back to the White House hat in hand and say, all right, what 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 can you give me to save face here? And then, you know, we'll pass whatever you want. That didn't happen, obviously. And uh, I don't think there was ever a really good articulation of what plan B would mm -hmm. be in that case. And so what they did is they went into negotiations uh, with a terrible hand, you know, like, like the, the worst uh, kind of preliminary uh, uh, outlook for negotiations that you could possibly have, saying that there's no alternative but to negotiate. Uh, and, uh, that's kind of why we're at where we're at today. And also incredible weakness when you consistently said, I will not negotiate. And right. then you roll over and you negotiate. I mean, the, the fact that they have so brutally also lost the messaging battle on this is pretty astonishing to me. And there's polling out that shows the public's basically divided 50, 50 on who to blame. If we do go over the cliff. And given like the clear hostage taking that's going on here, that in and of itself is an astonishing failure. But for sure, in my opinion, the biggest failure is that they could have dealt with this before we ever got to this point through reconciliation when Democrats had 
the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they didn't do it. So do you think that, I mean, the analysis I've seen is basically they didn't want to give Republicans a talking point that Democrats were lifting the debt ceiling and thought that, you know, that would paint them as irresponsible, et cetera. Is is that what this comes down to? They were willing to let Republicans hold the entire world economy hostage because they didn't want to give them a talking point? I mean, you have to, I I think that ever since 2011, when uh, there was this very scenario uh, and, and Barack Obama tried to use the debt ceiling to create a grand bargain with John Boehner on deficits and 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 make cuts to entitlements and things like that. Uh, I, I think there was a a, an un, a recognition from some that that this needed to end uh, for at every moment over the last twelve years. Right. And uh, Democrats always had at least one part of the government available to them to make that their demand. Right. I mean, whether they had the entire government or whether during the Trump years they had the Senate uh, or the House or even uh, a a filibusterable filibusterable minority in the Senate, they could have made that the demand. Like, this is over. We don't want to have this debt limit anymore. We're the only industrialized country on earth that has a debt limit other than Denmark. And Denmark's debt limit is such an impossibly high number that it never comes into play. This is a, a ridiculous notion. It's it's absurd that you would uh, have uh, you know a situation like we described at the beginning, where you already uh, obligate the country to spend and then put a limit on on what bills they're allowed to pay back. And so there should have been this concerted effort at every point in the last twelve years to just end this. Uh, it obviously is is very risky for uh, you know uh, the global financial system for America's sort of uh, uh, leadership financially in the world uh, for our borrowing uh, 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 credit uh, uh, rating and uh, it, it it's just a, a terrible idea and so yes they could have done it in reconciliation. Uh, the debt ceiling has been increased in reconciliation at least four times in the 1980s and 1990s. It was available as a solution. Uh, obviously, there was a belief that Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema wouldn't go for it. They wouldn't mm. they wouldn't do that. Uh, but then you could have put it in the American Rescue Plan and dare, dared them to uh, uh, knock down the Biden recovery. You, you could have put it into the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and I mean, there were so many ways in which. Uh, must pass bills that went through reconciliation, for example, uh, could have been had this attached to it. And and it's just it's really malpractice that we even got to this point. So true. So um, I want to ask you what you think the most likely outcome is. I know that's a difficult question to answer, but when I think it through, there's a couple things that pop in my mind. One of them is that you know, you basically have this standoff and this stalemate that's insurmountable. And then you basically have like a one year continuation of current spending levels. And, you know, then they address it. They kick the can down the road effectively, something to that effect. I don't know exactly how um, the mechanics would work on that front, but that's one thing I can envision. The other one is um, a bunch of Republicans and a bunch of corporate Democrats get together to basically do some cuts, maybe minor cuts 
on some of the social safety net programs, you know, I don't know if work require I don't know if work requirements would be in there or anything like that, but cuts to whatever, SNAP, WIC, you name it, stuff like that. But they don't touch uh, Medicare and Social Security, which it already looks like they're not going to touch Medicare and Social Security, probably because of Biden's stance and Trump's stance that put enough pressure on them to sort of back off that. And then, you know, the respective parties get told we're not going to get any other deal whatsoever. And so you have the quote unquote moderates. who I, I don't think that's a fair, le- you know, label for anybody here. But the moderates on the Republican side and the moderates on the Democratic side get together and then, you know, uh, sing the praises of we were responsible in bipartisanship and, and bipartisan and we saved Medicare and Social Security and we only did minor <laughs> tweaks to save SNAP and, you know, whatever other programs they happen to cut. Um, what do you think the most likely outcome is to this? Well, I mean, we're starting to see uh, us get to an end game. Uh, there have been three or four things that have uh, been kind of at the heart of the negotiations. One is um, some sort of spending cap. Um, there, there's uh, uh, one side once that uh, the Democrats have offered a uh, cap at current levels, uh, fiscal year 2023 levels for two years. Uh, Republicans want that cap moved back to fiscal 22 levels and to have it go for 10 years, although I've heard uh, maybe six. Um, And so, you know, there's going to be some sort of cap on spending and then a 1% growth allowed each subsequent year for an indeterminate number of years. Um, The second thing is uh, uh, turning in back uh, unobligated and unspent COVID funding uh, from the American Rescue Plan, from other, other bills. Uh, the third thing is some sort of work requirement uh, that you uh, described, probably for uh, temporary assistance for needy families, the welfare program, uh, maybe applied to SNAP, uh, which already has a work requirement, but uh, it would be more stringent. Uh, SNAP is uh, nutrition assistance, sometimes called food stamps. And then the fourth thing is some sort of permitting reform, uh, which uh, may be folded into this as well uh, to accelerate projects. Uh, you know, Republicans wanted to accelerate fossil fuel projects. Democrats wanted to accelerate things like transmission lines and uh, so they can connect renewable energy to the grid uh, and other renewable projects. Uh, you could see something there. So it's those four things that are being discussed right now. Uh, the, the latest thing that I've seen is that there would, you know, once you set a cap, that's just levels, right? And then you have to you have to pass a budget that gives you the specifics to fill in those blanks. And uh, there's very little expectation that Republicans will be able to fill in those blanks. What they've uh, actually put on the table would, especially if they want to increase military spending, because that's magic spending that has nothing to do with <laughs> that the doesn't budget. Count. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Same so, as tax cuts to rich people. That doesn't exactly. Count. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, if you eliminate all that, you're really only working with a very small part of the budget. You're talking about maybe 15% of the overall budget, non-defense discretionary. And those cuts would have to be huge to get you to those levels. They would have to be like 22% cuts. And nobody wants to actually do the specifics on those because of what it would mean. It would mean thousands and tens of thousands of people kicked off Meals on Wheels. It would mean millions of people kicked off of healthcare. It would mean savage cuts to things like the Women, Infants, and Children uh, Nutrition Program. Just just huge things. And so there's an expectation they won't get, they won't be able to pass the appropriations bill that puts this framework into action. And so now what they're talking about 
is that if they can't pass those appropriations bills, they will uh, do an automatic reset, like a continuing resolution to those 2022 levels. This kind of, uh, it's kind of a reinvention of what was the solution in 2011 to the debt limit crisis, Mm -hmm. which was called the sequester, which was an across the board cut. 8% cut. Yeah. Yeah. Across the board cut to a bunch of stuff. This would probably be the same thing, only more severe of an, because that cut, uh, the sequester was to defense and non-defense. This would probably be only to non-defense. And so it would be more severe. And uh, what we saw after 2011, because of the sequester, was like this extended, elongated lack of recovery, jobless recovery for years and years and years. Uh, the macroeconomic effect of this kind of cut going into an election year where Biden is trying to be reelected. I mean, <laughs> talk about just like 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 just malpractice, just just sort of, you know, self self immolation here um, politically. Uh, it would be it would have a severe macroeconomic effect. And, and more important, it would have a severe effect on the individuals who receive benefits, who are in, invariably the most vulnerable people in society. Right. And not only have they said not only they don't even want to cut defense spending, they actually want it to increase. Yeah. They want to cut some of the funding to the IRS, which actually increases revenue. So that actually caught like when you cut money to the IRS, you're actually cut it like that's that increases the hole in your budget. Double whammy. They don't want, uh, you know, I'm glad they took Social Security and Medicare off the table. That's good. But that's another piece that's off the table. Veterans benefits, they also don't want to hit. So to your point, it's actually very small percentage of the budget that they have to do these deep, deep cuts to. So the math really doesn't ultimately work out. But I think you know, if I were to articulate what I think is going on in the minds of the Biden administration, which I wildly disagree with, but I think this is probably their kind of psychopathic thinking, is they would rather take the hit with a progressive base that they have contempt for on yep. things like work requirements and, you know, cuts to SNAP and TAMP and whatever, because they think those people, you know, are ultimately going to fall in line. Anyway, gonna fall in right. line. Yeah. So they're, they're okay with taking the hit with the progressive base. They are more fearful of the potential economic chaos from pursuing mint the coin, 14th Amendment, or one of the other various options. And they think it's a better bet to sort of weather the storm of whatever the economic turmoil is from the uh, cuts that they negotiate with the Republican Party. I mean, that that's that's they've certainly expressed uh, a, a lack of interest in using those ex- uh, uh, unilateral measures uh, uh the ones you just described uh, they 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 don't want to do it and and they don't want to do it for whatever reason uh, uh but it's it's locked them into this this uh, uh pretty deep uh, uh destruction of uh the 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 basic budget sort of the basic block and tackle of the government they want to protect their legacy programs things like the inflation reduction act things like that IRS funding, which they've they've kind of put off the table, but uh, what they want to do is is you know confine the pain to this this little part of the budget that's going to have uh, really really dramatic effects on on thousands and thousands and thousands of individuals, um, and uh, you know the 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 obvious first you know the original sin here 
is getting into these negotiations in the first place yeah. after saying for months that they wouldn't. I mean, what what you talk about with Social Security and Medicare, that was kind of the high watermark. It was actually at the State of the Union address when in public he kind of negotiated out of uh, off the table uh, the Social Security and Medicare, which was sort of part of the thinking of what uh, uh, House Republicans wanted to do right. uh, with the debt limit to use that hostage. Um, uh, uh, that was the last day of Ron Klain's tenure as mm. chief of staff wow. was, uh, was that time. And, and we moved to Jeffrey Zients and we got this, you know, change in, in the negotiating posture. And I, I just want to say one more thing here, which is, you know, all of these things that we're talking about are wins for the Republicans, for the house Republicans, uh, for their, their ideology of, of low limited government. What Democrats are getting in exchange, uh, and 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 Republicans have said this, and they won't offer anything else, is an increase in the debt limit. But they're not getting a full increase in the debt limit. They're not getting it off the table forever. It's an increase for two years so that they can come back again in two years if Biden is president and ask for something more. So this is a hostage negotiation, right? It's It's an extortion attempt. But it's not a hostage negotiation where when you pay off the hostage, you get the hostage back. Right, you just yeah. get to rent them for two years and then Republicans can zip tie that hostage and throw them in the basement once again uh, to to engage in more negotiations. So uh, that's like the craziest thing about this entirely. If you're going to have a hostage negotiation, you need to negotiate the permanent release of the hostage. And they're not doing that. Uh, that that's what's almost most infuriating to me about this. So I want to give you my theory on if he were to use the 14th Amendment and hear your reaction to it in a world where he used the 14th Amendment. Um, number one, you know, that would go into effect right away. And would you have litigation? Very likely. But if there were a process at the end of it, I'm not so sure the Supreme Court would slap that down because that has tremendous implications for the U.S. economy and the global economy and capital. And as we've seen recently with all these corruption scandals involving the Supreme Court, they're very beholden to capital. So it would be snubbing capital massively for them to, you know, go against Biden on that. So um, that's my theory on if you were to use the 14th Amendment. And also, I don't really buy the idea that 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 would lead to economic calamity. I think it's much more likely that the contents of this deal that we're talking about now would have much more economic calamity. What do you think right. of my theory there? Well, first of all, I mean, you don't invoke the 14th Amendment. It's not like Michael Scott saying, I declare bankruptcy, right? <laughs> it, you, you don't. You, what you do is say, uh, I'm going to keep borrowing money uh, uh, to, to pay the bills that Congress has sent over to me. So I'm going to keep borrowing money. And uh, if you want to stop me, I have this thing in the Constitution that I'm not supposed to violate. I take an oath to uphold it that says the the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. That's what the, the relevant section of the 14th Amendment is all about. That That's the verbatim quote. And so, yes, I mean, the, the, the whole point of this is that uh, the, the president would then just continue to uh, uh, engage in Treasury auctions. And uh, yeah, someone would then try to stop them. Now, I mean, what's interesting is there's active litigation right now. So th this th you might be able to get this done before the fact rather than after we go over uh, the borrowing limit. Um, 
And uh, yes, the Supreme Court in either case would be faced with a choice. Uh, Do they uh, go along with uh, their sort of ideological soulmates in the Republican Party and say that Biden is not allowed to continue to do this? Although at that point, what do they say? Do they tell Biden, well, you need to prioritize payments. You need to pay this and not that you need. Are are they going to give Biden more power to uh, because, you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to say, "Okay, I will not pay for anything that happens in a Republican state? I mean, like, you know, there is there is no sort of uh, it's unclear whether he can even prioritize payments. There are machines that just sort of automatically pay out. Uh, 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 various payments to contractors and to uh, beneficiaries. And it's unclear whether you can even prioritize that at all. But to the extent that you can, um, it, you're 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 sort of directing the president to break the law, as we said before. Um, so uh, or, so do they do that? Does the Supreme Court do that or do they say, uh, you know, we we need to preserve the fin- the financial integrity of the global system? Um, and we had a piece today uh, from Ryan Cooper about uh, this very this very idea and the idea that the the president uh, has options if the Supreme Court tells him to destroy the global economy. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, there was a series of cases called the Gold Clause cases. This is when FDR was president, and there was a court case that would have forced the government to pay back. Uh, uh, a, a number of people uh, with an outrageous amount of money, and it would have further sunk the country into a very uh, in, uh, further into the deep depression it was already in. And FDR wrote out a speech where he, uh, anticipating an adverse ruling, was going to ignore it, and he was going to give a speech saying, "This Bait. is why I am ignoring the Supreme Court so to big. preserve the economy and to uphold my oath of office." And, uh, you know, I think Biden needs to be prepared to uh, maybe have to do that uh, if he's given uh, a set of options that would be debilitating to millions and millions of people. Uh, uh, This is part and parcel with the idea that if you have this sort of an illegitimate court making illegitimate rulings, you know, how far do you have to be pushed across the line before you push back? And I think uh, that's part of it, too. To quote the great Dave Chappelle, go ahead and stop me with your army. Oh, that's right. You don't have an army. <laughs> he said that in the cut. He was being Black Bush and it was about yeah. the UN. But yeah. the, the same same idea. <laughs> but the problem is, like, we know Biden's not going to do it. I know. It's just, it's, and it, it pains and me. And that's my, my bigger question is, like, is not just in this circumstance where it's particularly galling because the Republicans are not, like, we all knew they were going to do this. Of course. Right? This is no surprise to anyone. This right. has been predictable they said it for openly. years. They Ever said since the last time they openly. did it. Yes, mm-hmm. they say it openly. Just like they had a, you know, multi-decade-long project to overturn Roe versus Wade. They were not coy about this. Yeah. It didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> and then what and happens, he's like, oh, wait, they overturned right. it. We had 40 years to figure this out and multiple periods of time when Democrats had the power to codify it, and they didn't. They didn't. They're not willing to use power in the way that Republicans are. They aren't willing to actually solve these problems with the tools they have available to them. And why? Like, why is it that we go back and see the same movie again and again? And I have no doubt. Let's say they come to some deal, they resolve. It's, you know, painful for the people who are impacted by these cuts. And we move forward. I have no doubt two years from now, we'll be sitting back here having the same damn conversation because that's what they do. 
why? It's, I mean, if I could tell you why, uh, you know, it, it, I'd, I'd be a rich man. Um, it, it, it's, it's deeply frustrating to, to, to watch the, the Democrats stumble into uh, a, a very defined corner. Um, uh, Republicans before the election, Kevin McCarthy before the election said, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to use the debt limit as as leverage to to get what we want. And this is this is how we're going to play things out. Uh, there was absolutely no uh, no no vagueness in in what what McCarthy was saying, what all Republicans were saying. And for us to stumble into this once again and to hope that, uh, uh, you know, things could play out in such a way that that uh, uh, that 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 we could we could get through this crisis uh, and and just just sort of the concept of lurching from crisis to crisis mm-hmm. and trying to to manage each one of them. I mean, th- this this it's it's part of the sort of structural hands that, uh, you know, structural hand tying that that Democrats and 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 the government uh, in general engages in whether you're talking about the filibuster or the parliamentarian or uh, just all of these things that are these sort of fake impediments to governing and progress um, that Democrats pay attention to and uh, they and see as obstacles and and Republicans see as as things they can easily overcome. Uh, it, it there, this structural imbalance between the parties is creating just a tremendous you, amount of political unrest. Do you think that part of it too, though, is that on some level Democrats think that these crises benefit them politically? Like, for example, I don't think that's it. Overturning Roe versus Wade um, has really. I mean, I mean that this did. is the reason why Democrats had a decent midterm, right? Um, they probably thought, oh, we don't want to give Republicans a talking point on the debt ceiling and they'll look so unreasonable if they're holding us hostage. Like this will be good for Joe Biden's reelection. You see this when they raised the minimum wage way back, you know, whenever they did it back in like the Bush administration of $7.25. You could have included an adjust automatic adjustment for inflation, but they don't because they like to have the issue to beat people up with, but never actually solve the problem. I mean, is that part of what's going on here? You can't professionally lose on everything. You know what I mean? Like you got to give people something. <laughs> it's like every issue we lost, but you should vote for us more now. Like, that well, because now they're, they're so much worse and they'll do and they're so unreasonable, et cetera. I get on. I think you're you're both. I think you're both right. Um, I mean, I certainly uh, there are instances in which keeping an issue alive uh, is is uh, seen as better politically than diffusing the issue or, 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 uh, you know, uh, coming to a conclusion on it entirely. I don't think the debt limit is necessarily one of those. I I just think they 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 have a a really bad uh, uh, theory of of how to go about it and and they don't prioritize it and it's also because we have goldfish brains and 15 minutes after something happens we forget about it it's like yep. th- there's never it, it, actually the analogy the good analogy is uh long lines at the polls every 4 years we see this every 4 years somebody's waiting 6 hours to vote and we all say oh that's horrible nobody should ever wait that long to vote and and the next day there's some other story that attracts us and we don't think about it until the election comes around again when we say once again, oh, that's a terrible thing, you know. Um, and uh, it's the same with the debt limit. I mean, in two months, once this thing is over, there'll be a few stories about 
you know, people suffering because of these cuts, but there will be absolutely nothing about uh, the fact that this is still uh, an undiffused bomb. This is still a live option that's going to happen down the road. Uh, So I think it's uh, our uh, short attention span theater that is uh, uh, playing into this as well. Just just to take a quick stab at at your question, and then David, you can react to this. Um, I think it has more to do with the cult of civility and institutionalism. Well, I think there's two options. Let me correct myself. So it's either that Democrats are obsessed with like the cult of civility and institutionalism, which means they always color in the lines to be the responsible ones. You know what I mean? That's one view of it. The other one is, look, at the end of the day, he Biden might just genuinely be okay with cutting a lot of these social safety net programs because he's an establishment centrist. And this was like, remember the old videos in the 1990s of Biden on the floor in the Senate? And he's like, I said, put everything on the table for cutting. You know what I mean? It's like, that's kind of who he is. He doesn't view this as egregious. He doesn't view this as wrong. He thinks it's like responsible governance because we need to make sure the deficit and the debt don't get too out of hand. You know what I mean? Mm. So either they just kind of want to do it anyway, Biden, or it's like, we have to color within the lines and that makes it so we can't, you know, do the more bold things like FDR, which is so ironic because he didn't have a picture of FDR in the White House. Like this dude is the opposite of you. He used his power effectively for good outcomes. And Biden is the polar opposite of that. Well, have you seen, David, you mentioned before the Ron Clay in the last, his last day on the job was like the last good day of the Biden administration when he sort of got the Republicans to uh, accidentally agree to take Social Security and Medicare off the table. I mean, have you seen a major shift in terms of the Biden administration moving more to the right since Klain was swapped for Zients? I mean, they said they wouldn't negotiate on the debt limit, and they said that for months and months, and then they started negotiating as soon as Zients got in there. So, you know, I mean, uh, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, this this president passed a $1.9 trillion uh, economic stimulus package at the beginning of his administration, and they uh, the way they framed it specifically was that we're not we're not going to follow the mistakes of the past of right. the Obama administration, right? Uh, which did too too small stimulus uh, and and elongated the recovery. So there was definitely an instinct at the outset that that uh, you know we we don't have to be slaves to the deficit fairy. Uh, we we can you know we can we can forge our own path here. Um, so, you know, the question is why, how, how did that administration, how is that the same administration and is now negotiating the terms of surrender on this debt limit? Um, I, I think the, 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 the reasonableness issue, the, the, the responsibility politics that, that is, that is part of this, uh, is a big factor. Um, uh, they, they want to be seen as the ones who are the adults in the room. And even if that pushes them into a circumstance where the adults are are starving the children, right? <laughs> I mean that that's that's what we've what it's come down to, and it, it's just sort of you you know there's this sort of mindset in Washington when you try to think of these things and 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 play them out and how how the public will respond to them, where you get caught up in this responsibility vibe so much that you you're you're not even thinking about the consequences of of the actual policies that you're you're putting on the that's table right. and yeah, and right. uh and as i said at the beginning the real responsible thing would be to uh find whatever way possible to not negotiate with legislative terrorists and 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 you know continue to uh, 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 spend, uh, the, the down, the obligations that were given to you by Congress in a way that's legal. And, and those options 
are available. There are even ones that we haven't talked about. Things like uh, technically, when you're talking about the debt limit, you're talking about the face value of uh, treasury bonds. That that's the debt. The debt is you know if I sell a hundred dollar treasury bond, I've added a hundred dollars to the debt. Well, you can sell a treasury bond with zero dollars on it that just pays a bunch of interest, and uh, you would technically not be increasing the debt limit, but uh, you'd be getting money in to pay your bills. You could do that, and you could have set that up years ago. They're called console bonds or zero zero principal bonds. Uh, they've been used all the time. They're perfectly legal uh, uh, in Britain. They still use them today. Uh, uh, but you need time to actually set those up and 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 get everybody on the same page and on how you're going to sell those. And they just didn't do it. I mean, there's just been no pre planning for the eventuality that Republicans would be completely unreasonable with their demands. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. Yeah. I think the other thing you can take from this is the importance of universal programs. You know, there's a reason Social Security and Medicare are considered untouchable. And then we have, you know, this class of people that are treated by both parties. And sadly, a lot of society is like disposable collateral damage. And so when you have programs that are just targeted at the poor and don't, you know, the middle class doesn't feel a stake in, that broader society doesn't feel a, st a stake in, it makes them much, much more vulnerable to these cuts. And that's yeah. exactly what we see here. I mean, I think I think certainly the dictum that, you know, uh, uh, poor you know, poor programs are vulnerable is has been put through here. But also the fact that Social Security and Medicare largely affect populations that are strong voting populations mm -hmm. and uh, and and populations that have in recent years turned towards Republicans uh, uh, in, in, in larger numbers, or uh, there at least a greater proportion of the Republican base. Uh, and, and that's why you have this effort from both parties, from Donald Trump, as well as Joe Biden to, uh, protect those particular programs. Yeah. So Except Pence, uh, that's, Pence that's is not on board. <laughs> yeah. He's in the, still in the old school. Yeah, yeah, well, right. uh, Mike, Mike Pence is not, uh, uh, indicative of the zeitgeist. Doesn't, doesn't have no. his finger on the pulse, that guy no. necessarily. <laughs> doesn't he not even meet with women? Who are not his wife? Like he's not allowed to be in the same room with him alone. Yeah, you're in no danger, could, Mike. Could no no woman's going to jump you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you, David. Kyle oh, <laughs> loses it over him. here. Yeah. Thank you, David, for helping us I'm understand this and how it may all be resolved or not be resolved, and the options that are certainly available to the administration if they should so, should so choose to avail themselves of them. Always great to see you. Thanks. We'll keep watching. All right. So that was David Dayan of the American Prospect. Always a very thoughtful guy. He knows oh, yeah. he knows a lot about that debt ceiling stuff. By the way, I forgot to, I was going to bring this up with him. I forgot to, so I'll just bring it up with you. I actually covered this the other day. So uh, this is a, an analysis of the media coverage on the debt ceiling. 8% mm. of the articles on the debt ceiling mention that Republicans increased the current national debt significantly through their own tax cut bill right. or mention that Republicans ran annual budget deficits during the Trump administration. 19% mentioned that Republicans routinely raised or suspended the debt ceiling during the Trump administration. Okay. That's the three times they did it during the Trump administration right. and nobody made a peep. Only 19% of the articles brought that up. 19% uh, correctly mentioned that Republicans, um, you know, are responsible for the, for the debt ceiling crisis in the sense that they, they're the ones they're who are the like, we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to extract stuff from you. 
Um, 46% mentioned draconian cuts to federal spending being proposed by Republicans. Isn't that amazing? Like, not even half the articles are like, here's what they want. They want a 22% cut in SNAP and WIC and all the other programs. They don't even mention it. That's crazy. Less than half. That's insane. That's like the whole crux of the conversation. Yeah. And it's not even mentioned in half the articles. And then we have... um, uh, 63% of the articles suggested that Republicans plan to default on the U.S. sovereign debt obligations if their demands aren't met. So, I mean, just overall terrible spending. And the other thing is, I do feel like, and this is why it's great to talk to him, a lot of the basics are just not really covered. So people are left with, like normies are left with their just intuitive gut feelings on what a debt ceiling is and right. how it works. And they probably think like, oh, we're deciding whether or not we should go even deeper into debt. And I decide we shouldn't do that because I'm against debt. You know what I mean? Like a lot of yeah. people think like that. And it's yeah. like, that's not the way this works. You also, I, I did mention to David, but I think it is worth repeating that the public is split 50-50 about who they would blame if we default. And that's insane. And, you know, you can partly blame the media for that, no doubt. But I think you also have to lay blame at the feet of a Biden White House that has done an atrocious job handling this and messaging this, too. McCarthy is out there talking to reporters all day, every day, and getting their side of the story and their, like, twisted spin on the whole situation. And um, Democrats, like normal pro-Biden Democrats in the House caucus, are getting increasingly frustrated and furious with the White House's failures just on the messaging front. There was an article where progressive caucus members, who, by the way, are not all that progressive. Right. They were like, just do the 14th Amendment. What's wrong with you? Because it's very like a plain face reading of it is like, yeah, yeah, you have the authority to just be like, no, that ceiling actually isn't a thing anymore. But here's the thing, too, is like I have no confidence that they're trying to draw these red lines around like no work requirements and don't touch the Inflation Reduction Act and whatever. I have no confidence that they won't overwhelmingly fold when push comes to shove and Biden's like, here's the deal and it's the best we can do. And otherwise, this is responsible. And otherwise, the economy goes over the cliff. I think they'll be like, all right, fine, we'll vote for it. Right. Well, that's why I brought up what I thought the most likely scenarios were, which was sort of like just a continuation of the status quo and kicking the can down the road. Or if a deal is met, it'll be exactly like that, where you'll still have, I think, like Lauren Gates, Lauren Gates, Lauren Lauren Boebert, Boebert. Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think those types will probably be against any sort of deal that comes out of the Biden White House. And there may be, maybe a handful of progressives like Ilhan Omar or whatever who are against the deal that comes out of the White House. But you're going to have the corporate Democrats and the corporate Republicans who are like, yeah, let's all agree. We won't touch uh, Medicare. We won't touch Social Security. But let's do some pretty significant cuts to all the other social safety net programs. And that's definitely a possibility that that's what a deal ends up looking like, because Biden seems so intent on getting a deal that he's going to give away a lot. So and even the things that they say, oh, these are red lines, like they're not saying it's a red like we're not going to do any cuts to the social safety net programs. They're just saying, like you said, like, don't touch our, his big accomplishments. Right. Right. Like the IRA. You can't touch the IRA. We don't want to do work requirements or whatever. But that doesn't mean they're not going to cut the food stamp program by 10, 15, 20 percent. Right. So they're, they're not even it seems like they're not even negotiating on that point. They're like they're already willing up front to concede on that point, which is like, no, <laughs> don't do that. The position shouldn't be like, well, we don't want to go too far on this or that. The position should be 14th Amendment or clean debt ceiling increase. That's it. Yeah, this isn't. That's this all is a, we're willing is, to do. This and is a the man-made reason, crisis. You could just handle it yourself. And the reason why Republicans have a, such a stronger hand is because they do have like they do have people who you feel like are legitimately crazy enough to send the thing over the cliff. So you have to have people on the Democratic side to counterbalance that and a real like ex- like expectation that they will do the bonds or mint the coin or the 14th Amendment at the very least. And really, they should just do those things because 
we're going to end up here again in two years. This has been incredibly successful for Republicans. They haven't paid a political price for it. They've pursued their ideological agenda. They feel like this is going great for them. And so we can fully expect to have a similar replay once again with more draconian cuts that hurt the most vulnerable people out there. Two years in the future, we're going to be right back where we are. Bernie warned when they had a majority, when Democrats had the House, Senate, and White House, he was like, we should do the debt ceiling thing now. Get rid of the debt ceiling now. And none of them listened. Right. Of course, and here we are. Right. And, you know, you can imagine. And now you've got people like Tim Kaine, like, oh, maybe we should have done that. It's like, you think, you, you think. You can imagine a person like if, if Bernie was in office or like FDR, like he brought up, this wouldn't even be, this would be a blip in the radar. He would just be like, yeah, of course I'm going to invoke the 14th right. Amendment. Of course we're going to pay The minute they started making their their little noise about it, they'd be like, get out of here. No. Because again, the analogy, <laughs> no, like nobody's pointing out how insane the Republican position is. Because it is like you go to a restaurant, you order a bunch of stuff. Then when the bill comes, you're like, I'm not going to pay this. No, it, if you have a problem with the with the spending, address it during the budget process. Right. You don't address it now because then again, you're putting into question the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, which can plunge us into a recession or a depression, probably moves us even closer to de-dollarization where we get off the dollar as the world reserve currency. All these things. And, and nobody's like calling a spade a spade on that front. Nobody's saying like this is this is the scenario. And so, again, people are left with their gut intuition of like, well, I guess Democrats are pro-debt and Republicans are anti-debt. Right. I'm anti-debt. You know what I mean? Which is why they love this fight. That, that's why right. They that's why they love this fight. why they love this fight. Because they're psychos who don't actually care if millions of people lose their jobs because, you know, they're so dedicated to having work requirements and food stamps or whatever. Right. And Biden has the political acumen of a goldfish <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. 100%. All right, guys, that's the show. We love you very much. Big thank you to David Dane for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for watching us. We love you very much. Everybody do us a big favor. If you're not already, go on over to Substack. If you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every show and you get it a day early. You get our newsletters and all this fun stuff. And we, of course, deeply appreciate your support because we never talk to corporations. We never talk to advertisers. We build everything small dollar donations and up. So uh, if you haven't already joined, please consider. And for people who already have joined, we love you dearly. And we'll talk to you guys next week.